This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we talk about digital education and the future of learning. My guest is Ben Williamson, a Chancellor's Fellow in the Center for Research in Digital Education at the University of Edinburgh. He wrote the book, Big Data in Education, The Digital Future of Learning, Policy, and Practice, and is an editor of the journal Learning, Media, and Technology. Although the technologies themselves are often coming from a kind of global industry, the drivers for that are often much more kind of typically governmental-led. This is about sort of governmental logics of performance management of, of institutions uh, and the logic that, that data can be a source of constant improvement and organisational self-learning. In our conversation, Ben talks about the many ways data is being extracted inside schools and education systems and reflects on what that might mean for policy and practice. He warns that there are all sorts of biases built in to data. The systems for collecting data always have to be built. They have to be designed, they have to be engineered, they have to be tuned, they have to be checked. And so all of those very, very human and social activities actually shape the kind of data that you eventually get. Ben Williamson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for inviting me on. Can you give me a sense of the reach today of education technology? Okay, so I think education technology has really expanded across education systems in recent years. So we now see edtech in the early years. We see it right through primary and secondary schooling, through to university and even on into lifelong learning. So there's been a kind of a growth of what some people call a global education industry that increasingly serves pretty much every function uh, of education. So we have things like attendance monitoring in schools and universities through a smartphone, for example. We have the fairly conventional technology-enhanced learning and teaching resources. And more recently, we've seen the development of more data-driven type technologies, including uh, learning analytics and adaptive learning software, and even, perhaps at the most extreme end, uh, AI based learning and teaching uh, assistance. So some people are starting to talk about, you know, we might have AI powered smart schools or intelligent campuses and so on. But I mean, when I think about education technology, I think on the one hand, we have these kind of spectacular examples of things that are going to allegedly transform the classroom. But most education technology, I would say, is much more mundane. It's kind of sunk into the background. It's things like learning management systems or student information systems or even uh, large scale data infrastructures for gathering kind of national level um, student data sets. You know, for example, we have a, a new national student data infrastructure for higher education currently in development in the UK that's due to roll out um, later uh, this summer. What kind of data are, is that system trying to, to, I don't know, to analyze or to gather? I mean, in the UK, in higher education, we've always collected extensive amounts of um, student information from their background, uh, demographic details through all their grades and so on. 
the idea now is that the upgraded infrastructure for doing that will allow data about students to be collected throughout the academic year. Um, that data will um, be centrally held and made available to various different uh, organisations uh, that need it. Also comes with um, extremely enhanced data analytic capacity. So each university in the UK will have access to a new data platform for doing data analysis on their own students, for doing competitor analysis and benchmarking and comparison and so on. So we've seen this kind of intensification of what is possible to do with data in higher education, which is being uh, made possible by this infrastructure upgrade that's ongoing at the moment. And like I say, this is a fairly invisible, kind of hidden part of the architecture of, of education. It's not the kind of thing that students see or that teachers see in the classroom. It's not AI robot assistants or anything, but it has a potentially really significant impact on the way in which education is understood and the way in which students' progress is measured, the way in which performance of courses and uh, faculty, staff themselves is also assessed. It's like everything can now be measured and everything is, you know, the governments or school systems or ed tech companies are trying to figure out new ways to measure pretty much every part of the educational experience. And I mean, it really has changed quite a lot. I'm thinking about the ed tech when I was a student in grade school, and it was it was things like putting computers into classrooms. But that's a long way off from learning analytics to try and measure how I best learn as a student. It's a very different dynamic here. Yeah. So we've moved from ideas about data collection largely being about uh, assessment which is very kind of temporarily bound. It happens at long intervals. And now we have ideas about analytics, being able to conduct a kind of real-time assessment um, without the necessity of testing. Um, so there's a kind of constant assessment and evaluation or kind of uh, progression monitoring of the student that's available through the application of various different kind of um, analytics platforms. So I don't think we see any great break with the past. We still obviously have assessments and so on, but what we see is perhaps an intensification of assessment and also transformations in the way that assessment can happen. And perhaps most significantly, the capacity for these analytics to themselves learn from the process of assessing students. So they learn about the students' progress, make predictions about the students' future progress based on comparison with a vast database of other students, and then have the capacity for um, making feedback or producing recommendations for students themselves or teachers on how better uh, to proceed. So yeah, there's a kind of continuity from the past in terms of continuing to assess students but also an intensification and to some degree a kind of transformation in, in what, what is now in the kind of the assessment gaze. And what is the logic behind the intensification? Why do we need more data, more digital data in our assessment of students and in, in the education management systems, right? Like why... What's the logic driving that need? What's the reason for it even existing in the first place? I mean, I think this is largely being driven in the UK by a kind of performance logic. The logic that 
Um, if we want to see improvement at the level of schools or at the level of universities, then the best way of doing that is by actually tracking their current performance and comparing that with historical performance data sets and comparing it with other kinds of institutions and then using the insights from, from those analyses to feed back in uh, to what the institutions themselves are doing. So although the technologies themselves are often coming from a kind of global industry, the drivers for that are often much more kind of typically governmental-led. This is about sort of governmental logics of performance management of, of <laughs> institutions uh, and the logic that, that data can be a source of constant improvement and organisational self-learning and so on. And has it actually happened? Like, what do we know about the success or impact of all of this digital learning on student learning? I think the question of whether there's been a notable impact or success on student learning is a really open one. I've yet to see compelling um, evidence that the gathering of all of this data leads to in increased or um, improved uh, student learning. I suppose there might be other ways of thinking about the the impacts. I mean, what we might say is that there's a there's an impact on the way in which pedagogy is conceived. And so the drive to make more use of analytics and adaptive platforms goes along with ideas about personalised learning and individualization and customization around the student and so on. Uh, so the impact there is about introducing a degree of automation into pedagogic routines. But we're not, I don't think we're talking about entirely replacing teachers. Um, but what I do think is that we're on a, on a trajectory towards a kind of robotic augmentation of, of some aspects of the kind of pedagogic routine of schools. And one potential effect of that could be a kind of um, a, a reductive account of what learning is if learning is only what can be seen and observed and recorded by particular kind of analytics technologies um, then that seems to shut out other kinds of forms of teaching or other ideas about the the the, the value of um, different approaches to teaching and so on so I think maybe we could see we could trace out or we can see the beginning of some impacts on the way in which teaching is performed uh, and the way in which we conceive of what kinds of pedagogies are valuable and the danger is that we only conceive of valuable pedagogies being those that can be measured and counted and quantified uh, in, in those kinds of ways. Right. It, it would miss all sorts of other elements, other more qualitative, more difficult to define. The other thing that I find so fascinating is that, you know, with um, data and, you know, big data, and there's this sort of common assumption that being able to measure something and have a data set is in itself objective. And sometimes it, you know, it seems like it's a bit more subjective by selecting which proxies you want or which measurements you want or which measurements you value. So in ed tech and in the, the sort of digital technologies in education that you've been looking at, you know, are these data points objective or is there more to it? I, mean, I think there's a really common perception in the education technology sector and in the 
education or in the technology sector more widely that data do provide a kind of objective, realistic, impartial and neutral representation of what's really going on in classrooms and that or that the data are you know really accurate proxies of particular kind of cognitive processes that are involved in learning and so on. I think what that kind of realist perspective overlooks is that the systems for collecting data always have to be built. They have to be designed, they have to be engineered, they have to be tuned, they have to be checked. Somebody has to do a load of statistical weighting. And so all of those very, very human and social activities actually shape the kind of data that you eventually get. Which is not to say that you don't might not get useful data, but I think it, we, we need to recognise that uh, the data are not simply these kind of objective god's eye views of what's really happening in classrooms and the data is also extremely partial that it can only measure the things that it's or the, the software can only measure what it's been told or programmed to measure and there may be all sorts of other things going on that are contributing to a particular learning experience or to a particular moment of progression for a student, which are completely outside of the view of, of the software that's doing uh, the recording. Um, so I think we need to be really cautious about these ideas of data and objectivity. So you said earlier that, you know, a lot of this sort of comes from government mentalities in performance management and assessment and sort of that logic entering schools and education systems. But are there other actors involved in this ed tech world producing all of this data beyond governments? For me, what's really intriguing about our current moment is that we seem to have governments and education technology companies speaking often the same language um, and pursuing pretty similar goals. Um, so I know, you know, lots of people working in the kind of education policy space talk about network governance and policy networks and so on where policy and governance is no longer just uh, the preserve of government departments and ministers and policymakers and so on, but actually you have these really complex mixes of government centres and education businesses and think tanks and consultancies and so on. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking about what's happening in our particular kind of education technology moment, that there are multiple different organisations and actors from very different sectors coming together around shared aims and visions and aspirations for what a kind of technology enhanced education could or should be. So some of the, the other big players, for example, I'd include Pearson, the you know world's biggest education company, um, which recently announced it was ditching its um, traditional textbook business and moving to a digital first platform business model. So it's going to be delivering all of its um, online or, or delivering all of its teaching resources on a kind of on-demand subscription streaming model. Um, so it's talked about becoming the Netflix for education. And Pearson is also pushing its artificial intelligence learning and teaching assistance, um, which it calls ADA. AIDA. So Pearson, I think, is a is a big influence on on education technology uh, at the moment, and particularly this move to creating products that are fueled by student data 
and are responsive to students on the basis of learning from what the students do. Some of the other organisations, I mean, Google clearly is a, a huge actor, G Suite and Google Classroom are now used by millions of students and are, you know, incredibly influential, arguably in introducing young people to the kind of Google world of, of services and so on. And then you've got um, organisations like the Gates Foundation, of course, which has been pushing education technology and personalised learning for a long time. And then newer organisations like Mark Zuckerberg's Chan Zuckerberg uh, initiative, you know, a kind of what some people call a for-profit philanthropy because it mixes venture capital investment with more traditional models of grant giving and so on. I mean, the, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, despite the fact it's only five years old, has already given hundreds of millions of dollars to support its own vision of personalised education and what it describes as the use of learning science and learning engineering as ways of um, sort of improving education and making it much more scientifically rigorous and evidence-based. There, of course, there are multiple other um, organisations, but I think that gives some sense of, you know, we've got lots and lots of sort of government interest and we've got the think tanks and the consultancies and then we've got these really big, increasingly global organisations, all largely singing from the same kind of hymn sheet. So beyond, you know, the idea of all of these for-profit companies infiltrating all aspects of the education process from early childhood all the way through lifelong learning, as you said, you know, beyond that sort of profit motive and, and privatizing various parts of public education, why else should we be worried? You know, some people might say having all of this technology, having access to G Suite, having you know, the ability to use computers and, and gather all of this data is valuable. So what would be some of the, you know, other worries that you have when you look at this plethora of actors in this space? I, mean, I suppose one of the, the obvious worry is that there's pretty compelling evidence now that students' personal data is leaking out all over the place. Um, so there's a really important project in the States on um, school cybersecurity which is mapping out, you know, now hundreds of, of data breaches and ransomware attacks and so on. So I think that's a, a clear concern. I think one of the others is that we're now seeing the, you know, often quite, we're often seeing for-profit organisations now increasingly influential in shaping the direction of public education itself. So we actually have private sector business models which are concerned with developing new data-driven technologies and then finding market niches for those products eventually and over time reshaping the way in which schools are organised and the way in which universities are, are, are run and so on. So I think we need to be just keep our eye very, very closely on the those kind of wider and significant shifts in how we think about the nature and the value of education itself, which, I, you know, I think is being changed and, and shaped by, you know, these other kinds of organisations, which have become almost like kind of shadow authorities, you know, in, in public education itself. They're engineering products, but they're also re-engineering education uh, itself in some sense. If we think that data invites students to look on themselves in new kinds of ways, or it invites 
or encourages teachers to look at students and understand students primarily through their data traces, then you know, I think we really do need to consider the way in which this is shaping different kinds of subjectivities in classroom, different ways of relating to oneself or relating to, to others. Teachers are being encouraged to look into the classroom through a kind of data gaze, um, as David Beer calls it, you know, to see students represented first and foremost through their numbers, because it is those numbers that, as it were, count the most and on which teachers themselves will be held accountable. You know, they're responsible for student performance in multiple ways and the data seems to indicate whether teachers are doing that. So um, I think these are all, you know, incredibly um, significant issues in terms of, well, as you say, a kind of re-engineering uh, of, of those people who inhabit classrooms. There's this idea that you write about uh, or that you point to called precision learning. What on earth is precision learning? So I see precision learning or precision education as as the kind of extreme end of education technology at the moment. Um, it's where edtech software engineering meets the sciences of learning and cognitive science and neuroscience and even to a certain extent biomedicine. So I think it's come from a number of different um, kind of sources. Firstly, we have organisations like the OECD, you know, an extremely influential global organisation, pushing for greater use of scientific insights into learning. And it, it claims that policy-relevant scientific insights are coming from cognitive science, from psychology, from neuroscience. And in particular, it argues that these insights are being generated through sophisticated lab technologies and AI and machine learning that's all being used to analyse really large-scale uh, quantities of, of student data. Then we have, in addition to those kinds of bigger drivers, we have new spin-out organisations which are developing things like wearable brain scanning headsets for monitoring the kind of activation and oscillations of the brain during learning experiences. So EEG headsets and head nets and, and so on. And there are a number of startup organisations that have developed those kinds of technologies, which, you know, are now uh, on the market. They're available and they're being used in various research projects to try and explore the kind of brain-based or the, the kind of neural substrates of, of learning, as it were. And then precision education is sort of completed, if you like, by learning analytics or developments in learning analytics with the claims that it's possible through the gathering of these enormous data sets about the brain or about cognition and so on to identify patterns in these huge data sets and on that basis to then make precise personalized uh, interventions and recommendations so it's taking the logic of personalized learning and saying well hang on let's, let's make personalized learning brain optimized or cognition optimized based on the you know the the masses of data that we have about both individuals and huge populations against which they can be compared so there is one company based in boston came out of research in neuroscience at harvard university 
that I saw recently had announced what it called a brain-optimised personalised learning platform. So I think that's the kind of direction we're heading in, in terms of a kind of precision education model. It's like a bad Stanley Kubrick film of the you know future dystopic world of education, it seems like, in my mind. You know, the, these students wearing these wearable technologies so the data is gathered and analyzed instantaneously to, to say exactly when a student is, is or is not learning and to what effect. It seems like science fiction. It, it seems like a pipe dream in many ways, like it, it would never exist. But yet we have all of these companies that already do exist that are doing it. And big universities, big famous universities are putting a lot of money into it. So it's sort of, you know, it's not just a joke, as I sometimes think about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative to return to them recently announced that they'd given, I think it was $2.9 million to a particular lab at uh, the University of California, San Francisco, which is, you know, developing these very technologies um, and actively describes itself as the precision learning center um, you know these kinds of labs are where in part the future of education is getting invented you know it's trying these kinds of technologies out seeing what kinds of insights we can get from them uh, experimenting with adaptive algorithms and machine learning to see then whether the um the sort of the, the the sensor kits and the analytics stitched together can ultimately provide really precise personalized adaptive um type of recommendations and interventions it's almost like we're now not even talking about teachers anymore in the very process of schooling and learning yeah i think well maybe we're talking about a very different sort of teacher i mean there is certainly some out there who talk of genuinely trying to automate the task of teaching. I think the more realistic view is that we will see augmented type teachers, some of whose professional responsibilities are delegated to, you know, artificially intelligent machines. I think that raises all sorts of questions about teacher professionalism and teachers' capacity to to challenge the kind of recommendations and insights of these kinds of automated assistants in in the classroom i think we'll have to do an awful lot of work to help prepare teachers for their automated teaching assistants uh entering the classroom but um yeah i don't i don't think it will have teaching without teachers but i do think we'll have teaching with human and non-human teachers in you know the next five ten years or so gosh could you imagine being a teacher and having you know, this precision learning data coming down at you saying, this is how to do it. Like, how do you fight back? How do you say, actually, I have a different opinion than your opinion based on, you know, a million data points? I mean, I don't know how to fight back, really. I mean, I'm aware that there are some activist groups, particularly in the States, really challenging some of these developments, you know, teachers and parents. I think there are some, there have been some interesting specific examples of um, students walking out of schools that have really invested heavily in personalized learning software. Um, So it suggests that there's a kind of, there's an awareness amongst certain groups of educators and students themselves of 
the you know the real limitations of these kinds of technologies despite all of the hype and the optimistic utopian promises made about them yeah exactly now is there you know another thing at least in the states that's becoming quite popular and common i would say i mean i even did it is dna sequencing for you know for a small fee by companies like 23andme and i'm i'm pretty sure there's other ones and you know, I did it. And then only later did I really start thinking, oh, my gosh, there's all this data now that is owned by, I think, the former wife of a Google um, executive or, or founder. You know, so it's some private company that owns all this data about myself and who knows how it will be used and to what effect. But, you know, is DNA sequencing and the data that comes out of that being integrated into some of these other ed tech digitalized sort of platforms that you're you're seeing emerge at this moment thankfully we don't see dna based education platforms yet but this is a an emerging topic and it's i think you know an extremely contentious and controversial one so 23 and me is already involved in education research so 23 and me is a collaborator with behavioral geneticists and what are called geno economists who are doing very large-scale studies on the associations between dna and educational outcomes so a study that was published a little under two years ago had a sample of a million people who had voluntarily donated their dna either to 23andme in the states or to the biobank in the UK. So we now have these extremely large genetic studies going on looking for complex associations between uh, in patterns of DNA and eventually educational outcomes such as attainment. Because if you, you know, when you spat in a vial for 23andMe, you would have filled in a background questionnaire and educational attainment is, you know, commonly collected in those kinds of questionnaires so that makes it possible to do these kind of studies say so, well okay we've got you know millions of samples uh, and we can now identify as the scientists on this particular study have they've identified 1200 particular kinds of um, uh, genetic markers that are associated with how long you spend in school or university so i'm not aware of these kinds of findings yet being taken up in either policy or in education technology development but there is a very live debate at the moment about whether it might be possible to use genetic data to assess students strengths and weaknesses and then to make personalized learning decisions and predictions based on that it's important to acknowledge that not all the people involved in this kind of science agree that that's a desirable outcome but others do they think actually you know we, we if we can analyze dna and identify that you know some students will you know succeed in school and others won't then it's you know we have a responsibility to vary what they receive in school rather than pursuing a one-size-fits-all uh, curriculum where some inevitably will you know will will fail those the view that you can use DNA to do personalised education is certainly not shared by all, but it's 
I think a really live topic which we need to focus on over the next coming years and in actual fact that's what I'm hoping to focus my future research on. <laughs> wow, I mean it's a slippery slope to eugenics it seems. You know, I'm I'm sitting here at UCL which is where you know eugenics was created and, and there's a live debate happening right now on campus about how do we remember certain scientists who really advanced and promoted the use of um, eugenics um, in policy and practice. And people often think of it as a historical debate, but it seems as if there actually is some, some scary uh, contemporary parallels happening as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's really important that we're, you know, paying attention to really important and dangerous ideas about eugenics again at the moment. I mean, obviously, just in the last couple of weeks, we've had major controversy in the UK about uh, eugenics thinking inside of central government. At the same time, I think we need to be cautious before hitting the eugenics button in relation to some of the studies that are going on. It's quite clear that projects which claim that you can personalise education based on DNA could lead to horrible forms of discrimination, which we, you know, absolutely must counter. Um, but the majority of scientists, the, you know, the, the genetic scientists working on these, this kind of research are really not interested in trying to intervene in that kind of way. Now, I think we should still look critically at the kind of findings they're producing, but I think it might also um, be unhelpful to approach all of this kind of research in the first instance as if it is all, you know, yet another step closer to eugenics. So certainly in the research that I'm hoping to do in coming months, perhaps years, is to try and trace much more closely what are the, what are the actual processes through which this new genetic knowledge is being produced how is that knowledge affected or influenced by the kind of infrastructure of technologies that is doing the data collection and analysis and then what kind of work goes on to translate those findings into a kind of policy relevant language if at all um, because it you know these findings might not be taken up by policy at all and certainly some of the scientists are actively resistant to the idea that there are policy implications uh, of their work but at the same time we need to be we need to recognize that there are certain commentators with high profile commentators who get invited to write high profile columns and so on who who are already saying you know we should make use of genetic data for for all sorts of reasons and some of those people sit pretty firmly in the right wing and have highly conservative views so this is a really contested space but I think we need to be really careful about teasing out all of the various different perspectives and arguments that are being made. Ben Williamson thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed really a pleasure of talking today and when you get some more research done on genetics and education and precision learning please come back on and share your findings with us. Thank you very much, Will. It's been a real pleasure being on the show. Ben Williamson is a Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Today's show focused on his 2019 article entitled Digital Policy Sociology, 
Software and Science in Data-Intensive Precision Education, which was published in Critical Studies in Education. You can follow Ben's writing at the blog CodeX in Education. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.